I'm Damian Bulwa, Managing Editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Today on Fifth and Mission, California takes up the question of whether reparations should be paid to Black Americans for slavery and legalized discrimination. In 2014, the journalist ta Coates wrote a groundbreaking article for The Atlantic titled The Case for Reparations. He argued in his words that almost every longstanding American institution, public or private, has a history of extracting wealth from the African-American community. Fast forward six years after the police killing of George Floyd and California is launching a task force to develop proposals for reparations. Under a bill signed this month by Governor Gavin Newsom, the task force is expected to begin its work by next summer, with appointed members documenting the state's history of slavery and then recommending remedies to the legislature by June 2022. To talk about this historic moment, my guests today are Sacramento reporter Dustin Gardner and Justin Phillips, a food writer who co-hosts our Extra Spicy podcast and does a weekly column about Black culture in the Bay Area. How are you two? Doing well. Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Both of you guys have been writing about the idea of whether California should embark on reparations. Dustin, you wrote that California's history is crucial to this discussion, that while it was admitted to the Union as a free state in the mid-1800s, that's not the whole story. How prevalent was slavery in California? Yeah, that perception definitely is not the whole story. Um, I, I think in, in a lot of t- history textbooks, a lot of versions of California history, the gold rush days are sort of described as this era of equality where people of all races kind of ha- shared some sort of fraternity or brotherhood in the gold fields. And that really just doesn't jive with the true history. Um, even when California became a state in 1850, there were already hundreds of slaves here, um, people that were forced to work in mines, on plantations, um, and they weren't given their freedom after California received statehood. They were Many of them were kept in slavery for many years afterward, and the state actually even sanctioned that, legally speaking. And what happened after the end of legalized slavery in California? Did, did the anti-Black bias continue in state policy? Yeah. So, you know, even beyond the issue of slavery, which, you know, the state openly endorsed, there were fugitive slave laws that allowed people, Southerners, to keep their slaves. Um, But even after that, there were there were quite a few laws that really quickly um, the founders of the state put into place. There were laws that prevented black people or Native Americans from testifying against white people in court that allowed, uh, in many cases, white people to not be prosecuted for violence. there were indentured servitude laws that the state endorsed. Um, but then, you know, even in the into the 1900s, the state really it, starting, you know, in the early 1900s, the state openly endorsed policies that allowed for segregation and housing. Um, the, you know, these were racial covenants that would prohibit African-American people from living in certain neighborhoods. The state Supreme Court also endorsed um, segregation in schools. And that thread really continued um, into modern times, you know, with redlining and housing policies. Um, the, throughout its history, California has had a thread of, of, of allowing anti-Black policies, a lot of these reparations advocates would say. Justin, you've written a lot about these housing policies. They've been very much at the center of the reparations debate, and, and they were a big part of, of the ta Coates piece. But this, this reparations debate, it's happened for, for decades, and all of a sudden, um, we're really talking about it in California. What has made the space for this issue to come to the, to the forefront? 
Oh, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, no, this conversation has been going on for the longest. If you look within the black community, this could be, you know, I remember my grandparents having this talk when I was a child, right? Um, and I think right now the reason why it seems so it looms so large in society is because, you know, we're having this racial reckoning in 2020. Um, you couple that with, you know, I think that moment was boosted by the pandemic. This whole dialogue about race and equity, uh, it gave people something to focus on as well. Maybe people, maybe a larger segment who wouldn't have usually been this uh, proactive. So, I mean, it's a it's a conversation that's been going on a long time within the black community. Um, I think just this moment, there are other people that are focused on focusing on it, too. And you have a lot of black community leaders that see that are seizing this moment. You know, the country wants to hear about the black experience, it seems. And uh, yeah, they're just trying to talk more about it. So it's a it's a long conversation that's been happening for a while. But I do think this uh, racial reckoning this year and the pandemic have kind of like elevated its status. And also with the pandemic, we've seen the racial disparities just in terms of, of case infections, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's a whole other angle to it. There's so many things that, you know, that tie into this this ongoing racial conversation in our country. But, you know, outside of people wanting to get out and protest in the pandemic just to be around each other, you're absolutely right. There are stories about how black communities are being impacted more, black businesses are being impacted more, just communities of color are being impacted more by this virus and uh yeah, I mean, it's just it, it all ties together into just this this one really large moment. So the task force, Dustin, it it doesn't have a plan yet. Right. I mean, this is this is the strategy. We don't know the shape uh, of the potential pro proposals that could come out of it. Yeah, it really is open-ended at this point. Um, Dr. Shirley Weber, the, the state assemblywoman who sponsored the bill, she said that she very purposely did not include any specific remedies or uh, recommendations for the task force. She's really, you know, wanted the group to start from scratch for a reason. She didn't want the... Uh, that she didn't want the debate to get too bogged down in the details from the beginning that they wouldn't be able to do the kind of full um, examination of state history that she's hoping they can do before they even get to the question of, you know, what form reparations would take. Um, and the task force, just to give you a couple of details, it's nine members appointed by the governor and legislative leaders. They're expected to meet by the start of next summer. And whatever direction they decide to take, it's really going to be up to that body. But, you know, we're expecting people that have a lot of background in researching these topics will, will likely be some of the appointees. There also will likely be some state legislators. And from there, they're going to really do a very deep dive into to all these different um, periods in state history to look at the policies that have been building generation after generation, leading to some of these disparities. Yeah, I mean, for both of you, it seems like every time anyone broaches this debate, the people want to jump right to the end and say, like, well, how are you going to figure out who to pay? Right. <laughs> and they want to jump ahead and sort of it, it does tend to short circuit the debate. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think that that like I mentioned, you know, with Assemblywoman Weber, that was her concern. She didn't want that to short circuit the debate from the beginning because she, you know, she doesn't think you can really understand the need for this. And if there's not a greater understanding, you know, in the public about the history of the state in sanctioning slavery and the kind of how that has those policies built on other policies that were sort of the afterlives of slavery. Yeah, and it's not the first time, right, uh, that that reparations have been paid. They've been done in the United States, they've been done in other countries. Yeah, and it's definitely not unprecedented. I mean, you know, after World War II, um, every Japanese um, 
person that, that had that was affected by internment camps that the United States created and forced them into, they all received a $20,000 payment. Germany has had several rounds of reparations for Holocaust survivors. Many other nations have, played, have paid reparations um, in modern times. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you guys about the reaction to California taking up reparations. Fifth and Mission, right after this. Welcome back. This is Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bulwa. Joined by Dustin Gardner and Justin Phillips, we're talking about California launching a task force to study the issue of reparations for black Americans. Let's talk about the reaction. Uh, Justin, in the black community, you've written about the the discussion that's going on about this. What is that like? I mean, it's uh, really nuanced for the most part. I mean, it's one of those things, right, where, like I said before, it's been an ongoing discussion. And you know what the end point is. The end point is something that gets given to the black community. Where it kind of diverges between people is like, you know, hey, man, should it be just like a check? Like, I could use a check right now. Could it be or something that's uh, a little bit more long lasting? So you have some people that talk about how it should be aimed at education, you know, maybe making college less expensive or free for black people. Or it could be some type of guaranteed minimum livable income for black people all over the country. It's just interesting to have this conversation because I think, you know, as this new generation, there's uh, there's definitely a new generation, especially behind the Black Lives Matter movement, that uh, it's more young people that are getting educated about a lot of these issues. And so they come in with really great ideas for what reparations could look like after going years within the black community of only thinking like, you know, it might be a check or something like that. So it's uh, it's different now. The, the conversation in the community just feels different right now. You wrote that that perhaps it should take the form of land, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not. The reason why I'm laughing is because like I thought I'm just tossing ideas out right in the column. And uh, I got a lot of, like, response that was, like, you know, positive. Like, oh, that seems interesting. There was a lot of people who really didn't like that idea. And I think, which is which is fine, you know, it's not, I'm not going to run out and make this a definitive thing. It's just a column. But it's something worth thinking about. Because I think about it this way. If you think of how maybe, like, over the last decade, the nation's wealthiest private landowners have been getting more and more land, I guess you could say. And if you think about it in terms of wealth in general, land ownership is kind of tightly concentrated among, you know, the country's upper class, and it can lead to generational wealth. So if you're talking about reparations in some form, you want that payment or whatever form that takes to have a lasting impact because what you're addressing is something that's been generate you know it was generations long hundreds of years long so it can't be something that happens in the moment and that's it it has to be something that lasts a little while so i think of uh land ownership being a good path but the response just shows you how touchy of a subject even if we are in like this racial reckoning of 2020 how touchy of a subject uh reparations still is for a lot of people. Well, I think it was it was fitting, right? Though we're still in this theoretical phase where we're talking about ideas, <laughs> right? right? So, right. so I yeah. think it's okay. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think so too, and I think it's good. Like people, and uh, you know, Dustin, I'd be curious to hear, uh, even from like your story that gives very much just this like uh, like a really nuanced peek behind the curtain of of how these conversations happen within politics. Have have you heard from readers or any uh, 
you know, any other state city officials, anything like that? What's been what's been the response on your end? Yeah, I mean, I've got an incredible response. You talked about the amount of people that responded to your, your, your discussion of the land piece of it. And yeah, I, ever since you know I started writing about this, just the number of emails and comments, it's been astronomical <laughs> compared to, you know, just my, you know, kind of routine story. Um, and, you know, it's there's been people that were very happy to see this history come forward and actually, you know, hear people talk about there being slavery in California, because that's so like, you know, I said before, is so often swept under the rug. But there are also a lot of really strong responses of people who had kind of, you know, a sort somewhat um, visceral reaction of feeling like, you know, I, my ancestors weren't part of this or, um, mm. you know, why, why this group and why not that group? And so it's yeah, it's it's hard to have this discussion without people immediately defining faulting to those kind of conclusions. And, you know, I, I was talking about um, Assemblywoman Weber, who sponsored this bill. And when I had, had a long conversation with her um, the other day, and we kind of talked through all these things, and she really stressed that's why she wants to pursue the history piece of this first, why she really wants the commission to focus on educating Californians about the state's role and, and the way these policies continued. Um, and, you know, and she also just stressed that it, that this doesn't have to be one big swoop to solve all inequalities in history. A, a lot of the negative reactions, people saying, you know, I, I, I'm from this background or that background and they're, we're not included. And she said something to me that I thought was a really interesting statement. Um, she said, quote, when you try to solve, every, solve everybody's problem in one big swoop, you don't solve anybody's problem, mm. end quote. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the, the counter um, narrative that the task force is really trying to get out there to, to get ahead of a lot of this backlash that is almost inevitable when you bring up the subject of reparations. That's really good. The uh, I also wonder, too, like, especially when it comes to your story and even me tossing out the idea of uh, land ownership, I think during times when the country is changing rapidly, like on a social level, or at least it feels that way, I do think there are a lot of people that want to hold on to things that are familiar. And part of that means rejecting some new um, aspect of the past of something that they know of, like rejecting that because it changes like how they see it. So if you look back, like your story talked about, you know, the gold rush era and it's very easy to have this like whimsical kind of like, oh, that seemed like such a nice time. You don't really think <laughs> about racism and slavery tied to that. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who are from California that were upset, you know, that, that might not like this dialogue so much, but are learning new things about where they're from. I don't know. It just, all of this just feels so important as much as it feels complicated, you know? Well, I feel like, I feel like part of the awakening uh, that we've had and that is more mainstream is this idea that legalized discrimination has pushed forward through the 1800s and until today. And, um, you know, you could not have this discussion if you didn't have a large group of people who feel like um, there needed to be some remedy for it. Um, right. You know, this is a difficult subject, but a lot of people, I mean, there's a huge just debate over continuing biases uh, institutionally. Um, and we're having that discussion. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, just the whole sort of mythology around the founding of the state is really interesting. You know, mm. people from other regions of the country, the South and the Northeast, they, they, it seems like, you know, there's a, a reckoning in their in their state history. People really are aware of the role their states played. But sometimes in the West, I think we have sort of these, I don't know, manifest destiny narratives that are still baked into history classes that, you know, 
that students are learning and growing up in school. And the West, in a lot of ways, just hasn't had that kind of reckoning with its with the racial roots of um, of of the founding of our statehood. And so I think, yeah, that'll be really interesting to watch people kind of <laughs> get get used to the mythology of, of being questioned. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a whole lot easier to think of like slavery um, as people as black people working on plantations down south picking cotton. That's like a tangible image that's understandable. If you expand beyond that and move slavery outside of the south is when it becomes like complicated. But like I said, I'm just I think all of these stories are just really good to hear. And um, what a wild time we're in. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's talk about a little bit about more about the task force. I mean, what form could reparations take um, under this bill? And are we talking about cash payments? And do we think this is going to be a big stumbling block when they reach their conclusion? Yeah, I, I you know, I think that's um, something that Assemblywoman Weber really wants to dispel up front, this idea that it has to be cash payments. Uh, she, you know, she sponsored this thing. She is the, the person who wrote this bill, and she is even hesitant about the idea of cash payments. Uh, when we spoke, she really stressed that she thinks a more effective remedy could be um, reparations that focus on greater disparities in terms of public education, health care, even discriminatory property values. Um, and, and to understand why she stressed that, she, you know, we kind of talked through the generational wealth gap. Um, the, the Fed, according to Federal Reserve data, back, black families on average have about a 10 per, 10% of the net worth of, of white families. And that that's not just, you know, the amount of money they have in their bank account. This is land. This is real estate. This is things that build wealth over generations. And so the idea that a cash payment could, could correct that, I think, is worrisome for for um, Assemblywoman Weber and a lot of others who have pushed this. And that's why they, I think, I think it's likely that we'll see a lot more of the focus be on state policies and areas the state could invest in that that would counter some of these disparities rather than the idea of cash payments. No one's ruled that out per se, um, but but I, so far it seems like the emphasis will be on much broader remedies. Yeah, J- Justin, we see the segregation so clearly in front of us in the Bay Area, whether it's in schools and neighborhoods. Is that segregation a big part of this debate in terms of the remedy? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I, it's it's something that black people in the Bay Area talk about. Obviously, it's something that caught me off guard when I first moved to the Bay Area, because um, most of the black people that I would see, especially if I would go to work in San Francisco, were homeless people. And even that, and if you look into the numbers there, obviously there's a black exodus when it comes to uh, Bay Area cities. But if you look at the homeless numbers in the in San Francisco, like there's a surprising number of black homeless people, the levels to which, uh, you know, there's like a lack of equity and um, just so much segregation in the city are are, are really deep. You can kind of look everywhere and see it. And I definitely think it's a a large part of the conversation. All right. Before I let you guys go, I I just want to ask you sort of a larger question. I mean, where do you think this is going to end? Um, Is it is it an important debate to have no matter where we end up? Or do we think there's a real chance there might be um, some form of reparations or a big policy move at the end. 
Well, I think it's really tough to say at this point. Um, the, the public response to this task force, I think, is going to be really key. Um, you know, the state has a pretty significant budget deficit this year um, due to the pandemic. Um, but again, these are things that, that, yeah, if it's not a cash payment, these are the remedies could be things that that the state works on for decades. You know, policies to to level the playing field in schools. Um, to deal with a healthcare system that is, um, that you know, that doesn't serve Black communities very well. So I think the conversation about those sort of remedies that are more far-reaching could, could last much much longer um, than kind of the temporary controversy around a task force. And I think that's such an important point that Dustin brought up is how this could last for decades. Like there, there could be incremental changes that make a difference. This isn't going to be a quick solution type of situation. But I will say uh, an upside to this is the fact that we're having such a loud conversation about it. Even if at the end of the year, you know, as expected, nothing comes of it, right? It's still the fact that this country is having this conversation, whether it you know, it's painful for some people. It's great for other people, but it's happening. And I think, as as is the case with a lot of things that are happening in 2020 and, and this whole racial reckoning, it's uh, it's important. So, I mean, even the dialogue is good. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Thanks, Justin and Destin. Appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. We sound like a band, Justin and Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. All right. <laughs> Thanks to my guests today, Justin Phillips, co-host of the Extra Spicy podcast and a columnist and writer at The Chronicle, and Dustin Gardner, who covers Sacramento for us. Tatea Francesca Price for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. <laughs>